if I've got, I don't know, maybe five or 10 minutes and I want a quick release, you know the kind, I know the exact toy that'll do the trick. Or I know the exact friction and rhythm to deliver with my hands in order to do it too. But if I want to slow things way down for a totally different experience, when I'm not in a rush, when I can spend some true quality time with myself, there's some very specific accessories that I like to grab. Sometimes I blindfold myself or I dim the lights really low. Sometimes I use a feather up and down my arms while vibey music plays in the background. Sometimes I get as much of my body involved as I possibly can. I run my hands through my hair, down my face, and I let my fingers dance all over the surface of my skin. I put pressure on my inner thighs. I take my sweet time seducing myself before ever touching my genitals. And when I'm properly warmed up and efficiently lubed up, one of my favorite new bedroom accessories to reach for is the Oh My C from Ioba. I'm not sure what mechanism is in this thing, but the toy has a little nub that rotates at different speeds, so it mimics the sensation of being orally stimulated. It's nice, it's light, and it's quiet. Sometimes the sounds of my toys can actually take me out of my experience, so a softer, quieter toy is incredibly appreciated. I make sure to take deep breaths as I let the pleasure and sensation build, breathing it throughout my body, and when the time is just right, I pick up the speed of the rotation and I ride a full body wave of ecstasy. This is one of many acts of devotion I choose to regularly deliver to myself. And it's not about what my partner can or cannot give to me. It's about taking time to be with myself in my pleasure, doing anything and everything that feels good for me. If you're looking for a quiet, high-quality, beginner-friendly, super-cute vibe that doesn't actually vibe too hard, my personal recommendation is the Oh My See from Ioba. See the show notes for details and a discount. I'm Alexa, also known as That Sex Chick. And if you haven't guessed it by now, I love talking about sex. Not only talking about it, but I'm obsessed with helping you create an epic sex life while cultivating deeply fulfilling relationships. There's so much more to the conversation than just the act of sex itself, which is why I created this podcast. You can expect this show to be packed with resources, advice, experts, and everyday people talking about how they have created the best sex and love lives for them. If you are ready to take responsibility for your pleasure, then you are in the right place. Now, let's go talk sex, shall we? This is a Soulfire production. Holly, thank you so much for coming on to that sex podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, so I'm so excited to have this conversation because it is unique in comparison to some of the other shows that are available for our, our listeners to, to hear. So like I was mentioning to you before I hit record, some people are coming to this show. A lot of people are coming to the show because they are looking to cultivate an epic sex life in deeply fulfilling relationships. And so we have experts of all sorts coming on and talking about what their gifts are and how they work with clients. Um, and then I also have people who are in my personal life that I admire their relationships. And so the question of like, how do you make this thing work and how do you keep sex alive and how do you build on intimacy and all of that? And then I have a program personally called sex and love university where people come 
to me to learn how to step into this field as a coach, um, as an online influencer or persona and create a business. And so I know how to help people when it comes to like, they, they want to help others personally, they want to run coaching programs. They want to, um, host retreats, things like that. But I am certain that there are so many people listening that would love to develop a product or have, uh, or raise funds to create something that isn't even on the market yet that has to do with sexual wellness. And I know that there are so many people that are, are feeling that call because they, through living their experience, are realizing that there are, there's a wide open space mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there are needs for products. And, um, and so I know I've been following you for a while. I absolutely love the story of how Unbound Babes came to be. And so I would love to start with, um, first off, acknowledging the people who are going to be listening to the show that really want to hear this information. So mm-hmm. this one's for you, y'all. Um, and would love to hear the, a bit of the origin story of how Unbound Babes came to be. Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, um, so often in the startup world, the best entrepreneurs and founders are those that are solving a personal problem that they experienced. And I think that, you know, we tend to call this intersection of technology and sexual wellness sex tech. And most sex tech founders I've, I've met um, are working on a problem that, that, you know, they experienced and they feel like there should be a better solution. And so Unbound was no different in that regard. Um, I was 21 years old when I was diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer. And my doctors, as part of my treatment plan, told me that I was going to go through radiation treatment. Um, And it wasn't until I was about a month into radiation treatment that I started having hot flashes and all these symptoms. And so I Googled uh, those symptoms, and that was how I discovered I was going through menopause. And I think for me, it was just one of those poignant moments where. I felt like if I had been a man and it was the equivalent of telling him he's going to go through erectile dysfunction for the rest of his life, the doctors would have brought that up as like a pretty severe uh, side effect. And it wasn't even mentioned. And I think um, for me, it was just certainly not the last, but one of the first moments where I realized that sexuality for women, feminine, non-binary people is so often put in this dichotomy of fertility, motherhood, reproduction. And conversely, on the other end of the spectrum, really viewed through a lens of hypersexuality. And I couldn't understand why there wasn't a space in the middle where we were approaching sexual health and wellness in the same way that it's often approached for men. And so we started working on Unbound in 2014 with the goal of just trying to create both a shopping experience and online destination with educational and informative content that fit in the middle where it wasn't, you know, I'm pro porn, pro, you know, adult films, everything, but where it wasn't quite that sexual. And it also wasn't like this really medical approach. And so we started working on 2014 and it was not easy. It was really, really hard. Um, So I can get into all that, all of that, but Mm -hmm. that was kind of the origin story behind it in terms of, I worked for a Senator on Capitol Hill and then I worked uh, in management consulting. And then I worked at a dating startup. So I never in a million years thought that like, this was the industry I'd end up in, mm-hmm. but of all the industries I've been in, it is the most collaborative. And, um, it really does feel like a wonderful community to be a part of. It's really supportive. And, um, I, I, I just, I love being a part of the sex tech community. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. And I admire it. And I have been admiring it for years since I got started from afar. I considered moving to New York uh, right when I was like, am I going to stay in New Orleans or am I going to move to Austin? And my partner and I decided to move to Austin and it was the best move. I still have these moments where I'm like, oh, but I love the community and who I could be mingling with and interacting with in New York and um, with all of the pandemic stuff and that that I long for it a little less, but yeah. I still have these moments where I'm like, oh, what, I wonder what life would have been living in Brooklyn instead. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you first got started with the idea of Unbound Babes, what what was coming to you? So you'd gone through all this stuff, um, just like the kind of development of what, what came first? Yeah. Well, we had no money. Um, right. and you know, like I'm certainly privileged in a lot of ways, but I, I, I remember first starting on the business and going to these webinars and, and events to try to understand how do you start a startup? So I, I'd worked at one, but I had never built one from the ground up. And everyone kept referencing a friends and family round. And I remember being like, I don't know what that means. Like my friends and family don't have like, you know, $10,000, $15,000 to just write me a check. And so initially we couldn't afford to make our own product because it's really expensive. If you want to make something, most manufacturers have really high minimums. And so usually you're looking at an investment of it, like at least a hundred thousand dollars out of the gate. If you want to make a product, unless you go to like Indiegogo or Kickstarter and you're able to raise those funds. And so we started out as a subscription box with the hypothesis that it's a category. And today we make, we design and make over 50 different vibrators, lubricants, and accessories. But if you go on Amazon and you put in vibrator and you're shopping for the first time, they're like 20,000 results. And for most people that are either intimidated by the category or feel like they don't have, you know, the knowledge to figure out what kind of vibrator they're looking for, we felt like there was this really overwhelming shopping experience. And so we started as a subscription box one, because we could charge people's credit cards and then buy the product and ship it out. So it allowed us to kind of, you know, uh, curate products in the category that we felt like were high quality and body safe. And because we were buying them in a larger amount, we could offer them at a more affordable price point. Um, but then we, we did that for like two years and realized that a lot of the products would break. A lot of them were unreliable and candidly, a lot of them felt really overpriced. And it wasn't until I got into the industry that I realized the dynamics behind that are because most manufacturers and most companies in the sexual wellness space that are making product are unable to scale for a lot of institutional barrier reasons. And so you have all these small mom and pop shops who have to sell through distributors. And so as a result, the prices can be really expensive um, and inflated. And so that was when we really decided that we wanted to make our own line of products that were body safe and medical grade, but much more affordable in pricing so that, you know, you didn't have to spend $170 in order to get a vibrator. And so that was a really long journey in terms of how do you go out and convince a bunch of older white male venture capitalists that funding a vibrator company is a worthwhile and profitable endeavor. And it took me two and a half years and hundreds and hundreds of rejections getting laughed out of lots of rooms before I finally was able to find a fund that said that they would invest in us. And it was just a really dark, lonely place. Like raising money is just, it's hard. Like asking people for money is hard. And the rejection is so overwhelming and you have to learn, I think, how to just 
not take it personally and to persevere. And you learn that the people that are turning you down are usually for their own personal reasons of not feeling comfortable with the category. And, you know, it's this vicious like circle because people are uncomfortable talking about sex, which is why more sexual wellness businesses should exist. But those businesses can't exist without institutional support. And the people on the institutional side don't often want to engage because they feel uncomfortable. So it's just this cycle that feeds on itself. And I'm hopeful because I think there are a lot of great people out there that are starting to break through and break those cycles. But there are certainly a lot of barriers uh, and obstacles that you have to be resilient enough to overcome to build a business that involves sexual health. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with um, Kenneth Play. Mm-hmm. Like Kenneth Play? Kenneth yeah. Great. I That's love great. Kenneth so much. So um, I had a conversation with him not that long ago where he just kind of went on a little bit of a soapbox for a second and was talking about um, how we need more people in this space that make a lot of money. You know, mm-hmm. if we want to, if, if we want to have the change that I think a lot of us want to see in the world, then we have to make the money ourselves and be able to fund things ourselves at times. And like this, just like painting this picture of like, if we want the effective change, then let's all do great things, make a lot of money and start creating the change from within. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for real. I think it's frustrating for me because there are, you know, there's been, I think close to $600 million poured into two erectile dysfunction companies who are selling a generic version of Viagra. And the thing that is frustrating is we look at male, and I'm talking very binary terms here, but for the most part, the market looks at male sexual wellness as this huge opportunity. And the narrative I heard over and over again was, well, what you're doing is niche. It's small. It's not a big opportunity. It's like, it's, 50% of the population, you know, how can we value one gender's experience over everybody else's? And it's hard not to become cynical, which is why I think there is such a tight-knit community of female, feminine, non-binary founders, because you're living in this really sexist, doubled standard reality. And sometimes you feel like you're crazy because you're like, but you're saying that this is okay for people with penises, but everybody else it's not okay and it's it's inappropriate and it's wrong and and so i think as a result all of the sex educators and business founders did create a community because like we have to support one another in you know living in that kind of just messed up reality yeah one <laughs> one really awesome new york city subway advertisement taken down at a time or yeah. something like that. I think that I think that that made sense, but that reminded me of whenever y'all had those really amazing advertising. Um, what are they called? Billboards or yeah, I mean there were subway ads. Subway ads. We had commissioned this beautiful artwork from five different female artists on Instagram, and you know we were really direct in our approach to the creative, where there was no nudity, there was no photography of products. They were all beautiful illustrations that were done by artists. And it was the same week that all of the hymns ads went live and all the Roman ads went live. And the hymns ones had really phallic cactuses as the imagery to allude to a penis and an erection. And so we were like, okay, well, if they're approving something that is this edgy and bold, Certainly they're going to approve something that's just sexual health for women with like no product, no nudity. It's like art. 
And they came back and they're like, this is way too um, sexually offensive. And, you know, they rejected it across the board. And it got a lot of PR attention, which was great. But the subway still has a double standard where if you, you know, have a product for men and penises, then that's allowed. But if it's for female, feminine, non-binary sexual health, then you're not allowed to advertise. And it's the same on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, Twitter, YouTube. Um, And it's just, it's really frustrating because you look at the people at the heads of these organizations and they're all for the most part, white men. And again, yeah, it's just hard not to be cynical and to think like, well, of course you would think one of these is appropriate and the other isn't because we all have our own personal biases, whether we want to admit it or not. And, you know, to be a woman in that organization, I would imagine is equally hard because you're probably outnumbered. And are you going to pound on the table and say like, no, this is wrong because you also are worried about your professional reputation, usually as the minority uh, in leadership. So it is a a deeply rooted um, and embedded obstacle and conundrum that we continue to, to, to run up against. But I think as more and more people are joining the industry, hopefully um, the barriers will start to erode because they are prohibitive. And they're the reason why we don't see a mainstream brand for sexual health and wellness in the same way we see them for men. Right. Uh, real parts of this conversation. And yeah. um, and I had a moment where I'm like, oh, I forgot that that whole thing went down with the subway and all of that. And I remember looking at that artwork and going, damn, it is so beautiful. And, um, uh, another representation of, I think, unbound babes as, or I keep saying unbound babes that I'm unbound neither. <laughs> so of this, you know, not just a brand of vibrators or sexual wellness products, but a community. And when I look at anything that y'all have on social media, which I think is definitely plays a role. It seems as though it plays a role as like, this is where the community and you get the fire and you create the movement and you get petitions and all the things like the, you know, it, it seems like there's something stirring that can stir and, and come from social media for sure. Um, but I like look at, look at all of the Instagrams and the stuff that's out and it just feels so good. And so I'm curious from a branding perspective, like how has that been, how has that journey been of like creating something that like, when I see that you, I know exactly what it is. I think that that's just admirable, especially in this space, considering what you just mentioned. That means a lot. Um, You know, it's, it's definitely been a journey. I think when you first start a business, you feel like what's that phrase? Like you're a jack of all trades and a master of none mm-hmm. where all of a sudden, when I first started working on unbound, I was like, Oh, like I need to design our website. I need to figure out how to do photography. I have to figure out how to write email campaigns and social media and QuickBooks and all of these things. And it can feel really overwhelming but at the same time, I'm the type of person where I get really excited by that, where I'm like, okay, I don't know how to do this. I'm definitely going to fail a little bit, but then I'll, I'll learn and I'll figure it out. And I think in terms of the brand, it's important to, I think, define your values up front of like, what do you want your brand to say? How do you want it to make people feel? And for us, we wanted them to be able to laugh and have humor and be relatable and approachable and to not be afraid to acknowledge the truths that we all experience, but to do it in a way that makes it feel like we're all kind of like acknowledging it together in a funny way. And one of the ways that we did that is through 
memes and Mm -hmm. being able to acknowledge like just things that happen because we have human bodies, whether that's like queefing or anal sex or like whatever, it doesn't have to be this like scary thing. If we can just, you know, talk about it, like, like you would talk to your friends about it. And, um, I think we always knew we wanted the brand to emulate that. And then slowly over time, we just got better and better at refining that brand and, and becoming more clear on, on what our brand voice was and what we wanted to say and who we were. And we didn't want to be overly polished or, you know, I remember like first starting the brand and looking at like Glossier and Warby Parker and all these brands. And like, they had these Instagram grids of like, it's all the same color palette and it blends into each other. And it's also, and it's beautiful. And I was like, well, we can't, I was like, we can't hire a professional team of professional photographers to do this. So like, what do we want our brand aesthetic to be? And and we just decided to be kind of lowbrow in, in, in the way we presented things, but highbrow in the humor and how we talked about it, which is a beautiful way to say it as well. Yeah. Like your brand has to, I think, be an extension of your own personality because it has to be authentic. And in the beginning, it's just going to be you and maybe like one other person. So if you try to make it something that you're not as a, as an individual and a person, it's just gonna, it's going to be really hard and it's going to come across as inauthentic because you have to kind of just be true to who you are. Hmm. And it comes across for sure. And uh, kudos because this, you started in 2014. It wasn't something like, oh my gosh, now we have an aesthetic and people know us over, you know, the first year or the first couple of years. It's something that I have been in, I've been on that journey too and revisiting it over and over again and going, this is a painstaking process at times. And exactly that, what you just said, even in the production of this show, uh, the first time I got started with wanting to have a podcast, I simply just hit record and was like, I put it out in the world, the end. There was no real fluff around it. And uh, that show, I just closed it. I stopped putting shows out in 2018, but like people kept, finding it and listening to it. And as things grow, I was like, you know what? I think we're going to close that show. We're going to start a new show. It's been over two months of production and just in what goes in the podcast alone, the graphics and the audiograms and the email campaign and the um, editing and the process and all of the things. I'm like, just to have a show, it's wild. And then to have it branded and all of that, it's, um, I, I feel very similarly to how you said it. I'm like, I'm going to fuck this up for sure. And I'm excited for once I fuck it up and I get on the other side and I feel that element of triumph, like I can do anything. <laughs> yeah. But it does feel like you're just, I mean, it's, st- and I don't think that ever goes away. I don't know if it ever goes away, but like, I, I feel like you're, when you start any kind of business or if you just are starting something that hasn't existed in the world before and that you've never done, it's going to feel like you're failing all the time, but it's really important to have perspective and to look back and say, well, where was I a month ago? And look at all the stuff that I did since then. But it is easy to lose sight of that when every day things that you feel like shouldn't take as long as they do are taking forever. And, you know, people always see the finished product. They don't see, you know, the night that you were up till 10 PM trying to figure out how to edit something in Photoshop. And you're like, watching YouTube videos late at night. And, and I think it's important to be honest about how hard that is because I think when I first started, I just assumed, well, the other people that have started businesses must've just known how to do all this, or they must've like had someone who taught them or, 
had the money to hire someone else to do it. And I think that that's true for a very small percentage of businesses, but for the most part, we're all just kind of figuring it out as we go. And um, if you feel like you're overwhelmed and you're failing and this is really hard, congrats, like you are actually doing a great job. Um, Because most of us, I think, are so scared at, at the very real reality that it may that it may fail that like we never take that first step. And so if you are, and even if it does fail or it feels like it's not going well, at least you're trying. And I think like, that's the most important thing is just to give it my dad always, cause I'm very hard on myself. My dad always says like, all you can do is your best and you have to be okay with that. Um, but it's hard. Cause you'll, you know, there'll be other companies that will raise $5 million on an idea that they wrote down on a napkin and it, and it is unfair and it feels unfair. Um, but you have to learn how to not compare yourself so much to other people out there, which I'm still trying to figure out. Um, cause it's hard. It's hard not to feel competitive when you're giving it everything you've got. And from the outside looking in for others, it may feel like it's so much easier for them. But I think the reality is like, everybody is usually struggling. Some people just hide it better than others. <laughs> yeah, I had a mentor at one stage and it's eluding me who it was. It was a couple of years ago that said, don't compare your month three to my year 13. Yeah. Or something like that. And, and, or don't compare your month one to my year one or even 10 years or something like that. It's like, oh shit, I can't skip all of the, the things to get to my year one in the snap of a finger or my year four, which I'm coming up to. And it's like each year that goes by, I'm like, I can exhale and go like, it's staying. <laughs> Am I, yeah. is it working? I think it's working. If I'm still here and I'm still swinging, I think something's going right. Yeah. I mean, of course, I think I was texting with my, uh, another female founder friend literally yesterday about just, you know, stuff. There are always fires that come up. And she was just like, you know, if you work hard and you're good to people and you're, and you make the best smart decisions you can after a period of time, it will pay off. It's just a matter of being diligent and committed because they're so, I mean, even when I first started, my parents were like, you want to do what with your career? And, and like, if you start a business in this category and it fails, you'll never be able to get a job elsewhere. And they were just, I think, worried about what it meant to start a company that was related to sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there were lots of moments where, you know, like I was on Medicaid, I didn't have any money. I had to have a friend help me pay rent one month. And I was like 29 years old living with two 22 year olds in like a two bedroom apartment in, you know, right across from Penn Station. And it's very easy to look at my other friends who were still in consulting and making, you know, tons of money and be like, well, what have I done with my life? Mm-hmm. Um, and should I just throw in the towel and should I give up? And so I think it is important to surround yourself with other people who are, who are taking big risks so that one, you have somebody to talk to about how hard it is that, that can actually understand. And two, so that you can hold each other accountable and, and, and pick each other up when you hit those really low points, because those are inevitable. And you need somebody that you can, that, that will text you back and say like, it's okay. Like we had, you know, this huge problem the other day. And it's nice to know that you're just not alone in the journey because it can feel very lonely. Mm, even surrounded by thousands, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of followers and clients or customers and team members and everything for sure. 
and kudos, kudos to you and kudos to all of um, all of the people who were sure who were in this space. But like you were saying at the beginning with the diversity and the odds stacked against people wanting to celebrate female pleasure and <laughs> anything not male pleasure. <laughs> Let me just say, say it like that because it's everybody else too. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty special and that you kept, kept swinging. And I mean, I'm really in awe of the products too and how clean and sleek and beautiful and on all of that. And so I am curious just for a personal curiosity, not because I think anybody listening is really curious, but like your experience with developing products or the one that is just simply your favorite. Yeah. I mean, when we first set out to create products, we knew that we wanted, like I mentioned, everything to be medical grade. And the other thing was for it to be really affordable. And we wanted for it to not all be super phallic because so many when you look at the actual like vibrator industry, the first vibrator was created in the late 1800s. And so this is technology that's been around for well over a hundred years, and yet it hasn't really modified or changed that much. And I think that that's largely attributable to the lack of women and feminine non-binary people that historically designed these products. And so as a result, you had a lot of men that were designing products for people with vaginas, labias, and clitorises. And so a lot of them look like penises. And um, I think for us, it was how do you create a product that somebody could leave out on their bedside table? And if somebody were to walk in and see it, they wouldn't feel like totally like embarrassed or mortified. Some products are easier than others in terms of whenever you're working with electronics, it gets complicated very quickly. And so for us, it's one, surveying existing technology that exists, but then also if you're able to build a community on Instagram and through your email list that is very values and ethos driven, when we send out surveys to get product feedback, we get thousands of responses, um, which like is incredible because it helps you inform what do we want to build and what do we want to create and where are there white spaces where people have a problem or a need that isn't being met. And so usually when we first started, we released 10 products, which we wanted to be like a foundational set that we thought was really entry level. All the products were under $50. It was like three vibrators, um, like three lubricants. I want to say like two accessories and maybe something else. I can't remember now. This was back in 2016, 2017. And um, it was terrifying because you have to, you have to put down so much money in order to make the product. And we went from selling over 2000 products that were made by other brands to then all of a sudden having only 10 products on our website. And so I remember like the day we flipped the switch and took down all those products and then put up our own. And it was terrifying because all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, there are no sales. Like, what have we done? Like, this is horrible. But then slowly it started to build and grow and grow. But when you make big changes like that, and especially when you make product, it is terrifying because you're, you're incurring such a bigger risk by saying like, I'm going to build this and I'm going to put it in the world. And you also, when you're selling other people's products, you can get net terms where, you know, it's, I want to buy this product and I'll pay you $60 from now. Versus when you make your own product, you're having to put that money down usually six months before that product ever, you ever even see a sample of it. So, um, making product is hard, but it's also really rewarding. And then you can control the brand experience and the quality of the product and the pricing and the customer service. And so, um, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a long journey, but it's been a really rewarding one. Amazing. And your favorite personal product? Oh, my purse. That's tough. Um, <laughs> I really do love puff, which is a suction vibrator. We just came out with that is, um, USB rechargeable and waterproof and really small. It's only like three inches and it's quiet because so many suction vibrators are really loud and it's only $46. So that's my current favorite, but it changes like week to week. I'll go from like loving a wand, like Ollie or wand vibrator to puff to bender. And then I love Palma too, because that thing almost killed us to make. So I have a love hate relationship with it, but <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, that's the best relationship. Like make you work for it. Like, yeah. And the yeah. Palma is a ring, right? Yeah, we debuted that at TechCrunch, which like that tested my like ability to just be, I mean, being in a TechCrunch disrupt where it's like AI and drones and VR and like all these like really intense software startups and tech companies. I can't tell you how many bros would like come over to our stand and be like, oh, what is this? And we tell them and we'd be like, and you're at TechCrunch? Like, we're like, yeah, it's haptic. It's a ring that like, as you move your hand, the vibration intensity increases. That's an accelerometer built into haptic technology. Like we deserve to be here just as much as you're like, you know, Uber for whatever startup. And um, <laughs> but, but it, it's taken me five years to get to the point where like, I feel like I can actually stand in a room like that and both say to myself and to other people who push back on me that I deserve to be there just as much as everybody else. I think especially in startup world, I am not an engineer by trade. And so there's this huge imposter syndrome that women have of like, should I even be here? Do I deserve to be here? Am I as smart as everyone else here? And I think it's only through, you know, going to dozens of pitch competitions and inserting myself into that environment where I realized like, you know, we're as women, feminine, non-binary people, we're just as good as everybody else in the room, but it, it takes a while when you're one of maybe a handful of other women there to feel like you belong. Mm. So good. <laughs> and your love hate relationship with the Palma, that thing is sleek. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it took us two years to make it. <laughs> it, it just hardware's they, they always say like hardware is hard for mm-hmm. a reason. And it had in order to make it a ring, we had to the hardest part was how do you get a motor that is powerful enough to actually work and be a quality experience? But then how do you get it to where the the electric boards and the PCB and the motor itself can all fit into something that you could wear on your hand and it doesn't look like a giant ring pop. Um, So that was, and then we had this, you know, hard deadline of TechCrunch Disrupt and it was like two weeks before TechCrunch Disrupt and we couldn't get the circuit board. Like, we had to hand solder everything. Like it was just, it was one of those moments where we were living at the office. We were sleeping at the office. We're trying to figure out, can we get this thing to work? We're making these prototypes by hand so that we can debut it at, at the tech crunch. And meanwhile, I'm having to like memorize this five minute pitch. Like you're, you're going to have to present in front of thousands of people. And I just remember like, I think I had at least a breakdown every other day because the pressure was just overwhelming, but it also was like a really good push for us to like make this product and get it out there. And had we not had that deadline and all these like pressures and expectations, I don't know that we'd have Palma today, but like afterwards Mm -hmm. we had to have like a team therapy session where it was like, okay, so 
what about that was traumatic for everyone? And everybody was just like, I didn't sleep. It was horrible. I was right. But like, but that's, I mean, <laughs> in part that's startup life, but yeah. um, I am proud of it because I think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a really cool product. And to me, it stands for the fact that sexuality can be visible. It doesn't have to always be hidden behind closed doors. And in the sense that it can be visible, it can also, it gives the power to the wearer where it's up to you to decide, do you want to, if somebody's like, oh my God, I love that ring, which will happen to me um, when I'm out wearing it, depending on the conversation and understand having emotional intelligence to gauge like, one, do I want to tell this person what it is? And two, like, is this an environment where that's appropriate? Um, Mm -hmm. Which I think feeds into such a needed conversation that we have to learn to have as people, which is consent driven, healthy conversations around our sexuality, Um, which as humans, especially in the United States, I think we struggle with a lot. I mean, I do. Um, But I think we're trying to make products to make having those conversations easier. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime I wear my love crave necklace, it's usually not me that says it. It's one of my friends that knows what it is. It's like, do you know what her her necklace is? I'm like, yeah. would you like to have a conversation about pleasure and <laughs> orgasms and vibrators? Because <laughs> I'm just wearing it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I love that. I love, and also the, the content conversation. I'm like, why don't you ask them if they feel up for talking about sex before you go into a full on spiel? But it's amazing. So I'm sure you feel exhausted by this, but like one of the things I did not realize getting into this industry was how all of a sudden you become a therapist to all of your friends. Yeah. And necessarily therapist, because obviously I'm not qualified in that regard, but like all of a sudden you become a safe place for people to open up. And it's taken me a really long time to figure out how to create boundaries of like, Mm -hmm. just because I work in this field doesn't mean you can just, you know, open up personal sexual experiences and then like put that on me. But I, I, I mean, I'm sure you get that, but that could be so overwhelming. Yes. And I have those moments where I check myself where I go, the first emotion that you're, that you're going to label and choose is gratitude <laughs> and then we'll exercise it. But that's why, um, you know, when I first got started, everything said kaleidoscope for me. It was like kaleidoscope and nobody knew what it was. And I went through branding as a person who had no idea what I was doing. And then as time has gone by, I've like taken that stuff away and slowly, but surely created what I have now. This being that sex podcast, my Instagram's that sex chick. I have that sex group on Facebook. And so things like feel more aligned and, and they have more fluidity and cohesion. And all of that came from uh, me being called, have you met Alexa? Have you talked to Alexa? Alexa, she's that sex chick. Are you in that group on Facebook? It's that sex group, that group about sex. And so then I just ran with it. But yes, I like hear the little like, do you know Alexa, that sex chick? And I'll be like in the corner, I'm like, oh God, here we go again. So I totally feel that. And first wave, I'm like, just be grateful that you are recognizable in this regard. You're doing you're doing well with your branding and you're doing well with your message. So that's great. I'm taking a look at the time. I know you have to jet. This was a really amazing conversation. It went all over the map into pleasure and into the woes of startup and tech and the, the, the need for the work that you do, the work that we do, the greater, like people who are supporting each other. Um, it's multi-layered, I think. People supporting 
doing the groundwork and supporting the people directly in their sexual evolution and coming to terms with their bodies and pleasure and all of that. And then where I see you in a sense is giving hope to those and creating community for those who are stepping into the role where you are, because that's, I think a little bit different. And um, yeah, it's like a lot of stories going through the hero's journey or the heroine's journey like this, you see this beautiful thing. And let me tell you what it took in order to get to this beautiful orgasmic thing. And um, I'm so appreciative of you sharing some of your journey um, with Unbound. And then of course, some of your personal stories as well. Thank you so much, Polly. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe. So you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.